Anyway, <laughs> it's nice to be here. I haven't preached on an Easter Sunday for a long, long time, and I haven't preached this particular passage that we're going to look at this morning, or two passages we're going to look at this morning for a long, long time. Usually when I'm asked to, whenever I'm going to preach, I usually get several messages that come to my mind, but this time only when Pastor McCall asked me to preach this Sunday, the only message that came to mind was these two passages. I mean, there's more than two passages, but two sections within the Word of God. And we want to look at them this morning. One has to do with the crucifixion. The other has to do with the resurrection. The first one, the crucifixion, what we want to look at is the, ang- the anxious, I mean, excuse me, the activity of the cross. We want to look at the activity of the cross. And then we want to look at the... Uh, Necessity of the resurrection, and we'll divide them somewhere in there along the way. But have you ever stopped to think in relationship to? But let's pray before I before I go. And Father, we just thank you for the Word of God. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask you to bless our hearts, prepare our hearts, and give us understanding from the Holy Spirit in the verses that we'll be looking at today. And may the Lord's Word go forth all over the world. And people will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. We pray in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Yeah, I was going to say, have you ever thought the people that were at the cross when Jesus Christ was crucified? It's interesting because you have the, the, the leaders of the religion of Israel, Judaism there with all of their blind followers... They're at the cross. They're there because they want to be sure he dies, that he's actually killed, and he won't give them any more trouble. And then there were the passerbyers, those that were curious that came by and stopped to listen to what was going to be uh, done with these three men on the cross. And, of course, this, there was a large crowd of people that went through because it was just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Then there were the believers, those that were the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were there. Then, of course, the two men on the cross beside the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, his mother was there. And other people were there that were for various reasons. And they all came to find out what was going to happen because they had heard a lot about this man, Jesus. He wasn't just a stranger to the city of Jerusalem or to the people because he had traveled around and had done many, many things. But the religious leaders had a great desire, and that desire was to see that he was killed, and every time Pilate tried to uh, relieve them of their uh, desire to have him crucified, they would call out real and strong languages, crucify, have him crucified. And he would say, why? He hasn't done anything. And, but they insisted, and they won out, and finally the, trial, uh, the so-called trials came to an end, and Jesus was led to the cross, went to the cross to be crucified. And that's where we picked up the story today, the activities of the cross. You can turn in your first, first passage we'll look at, is in Matthew chapter 27, and find the section that deals with the uh, crucifixion, not the whole chapter, because the first part of the chapter deals with the trial, but the actual crucifixion, because we won't look at just one particular verse, but we want to look at the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now understand quickly that nobody knows the order of these seven sayings. 
I have in my order, and it may be very different from yours or someone else's, but this is the way I see or think they took place. And it's not serious, but they all took place within a three-hour period, probably, or even less than three hours, probably in a very short time, between 6 and 9, which would be 12 o'clock our time to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it became dark. And they kept uh, railing him, all the people that were there that were against the Lord Jesus Christ kept railing him. But the first thing is in Matthew. It's also recorded in Mark, uh, chapter 15, but we won't turn that. But just one, one verse in there. And I believe, uh, this is the order that I'm putting them. This is the first one. You may not agree with it, but I believe it's the first one. And it has to do with the words that are there. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabatani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And I think it's first because it's one of the most important phrases on the cross in relationship to the God that created the men and us and that we need a salvation in Christ Jesus. And so he says, he cries out and he doesn't call him Father. He calls him God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people believe this. He was praying originally in the Garden of Eden that in some way his death on the cross, his crucifixion, his giving up of his life could be taken away. But that would be wrong, first of all, because God the Father sent him to the earth to die and he came willing to die so he would be praying out of the will of the Father if he was praying that he could be uh, relieved of the crucifixion or the dying and payment for our sins. I think here he's talking about something different that could happen and did happen, and that was the break of fellowship and the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was so deep. There never had, if you could go back to the, when God was only, and there was no one else but God, if you could go back and just try to imagine, there was always perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout all of the history of mankind, there had always been a perfect relationship. The fellowship was never broken. But this day, in that short time, while Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, while he was dying for your, our sins and the sins of the world, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the very important reason that he would have to forsake him because Jesus Christ was carrying our sins in his body on the tree. And God could not look upon that. So he had to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fellowship was broken. Can you imagine? Perfect fellowship. None of you have ever had a perfect fellowship. Don't tell me. You haven't. You've thought you've had sometimes and it's fallen apart. And, and it's difficult for us to understand the wonder of the triune God and the marvel of them and their relationship was always in perfect harmony. It was right now. But because it was in perfect harmony, he had to turn away from the Son on the cross. And he cries out in a very strong way, My God, my God, why? I think he finds out toward the end of the thing, and he probably knew it already from his life with the Father and his relationship. But it was necessary. But now, after this break, this short break in those few hours that Jesus Christ is on the cross and God looks away from him, it will be restored. It will never be broken again. Think of that. There will never be another death of a son on the cross 
for our salvation. It's done once, it's finished, it's completed. But it will be restored. And the beauty of all of this, one day I'm going to join in that perfect relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with them in eternity. And there will never be a broken fellowship between any of us that are in Christ Jesus. There will never be a broken fellowship between the Godhead and those of us in Christ Jesus because it has been redeemed through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was necessary. We sometimes forget, or at least I should say sometimes I forget, how great the cost was for Christ to come, become man, take upon himself the likeness of man, and to die on that cross. We forget how great that was in the Godhead for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed from our sins, we might be redeemed, redeemed and restored and accepted in the beloved. And, but God had to turn away, and he, Jesus Christ, it was a great thing. Why? And then when Jesus Christ realized he was on that cross because of our sins, for your sins and my sins, what a rejoicing it was to know that he was willing to accept this at that particular That's the first thing, and I believe it's the first one in my order at least, and we want to keep that in mind because he, he, that was great. That was not a little thing. We sometimes think salvation is a little thing with God. It was the greatest thing that God could do in relationship to the human race was to allow his son to come to this earth and take upon him the likeness of man and to be separated from his father, from God, for that brief time. Think about it. Remember, your salvation cost. My salvation cost. It wasn't just an incidental thing or something God put on his calendar and it was to be looked at as, you know, not too important. It was the most important thing for us, every one of us, because if Christ had not accomplished this on the cross, if that break of fellowship had never occurred, you and I would never have salvation. There was no other way that God could do it. Now, the second one is found in Luke chapter 23, and it's in the section dealing with the, around verse 33, dealing with the section that has to do with the, the crucifixion. And the phrase that's spoken there, the second phrase that's spoken there, is, Father, now notice he's right, changes his address now, he calls him Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That seems like a strange, he wasn't talking about the cross. He wasn't talking about his vicarious atonement. He wasn't talking about the work that he was doing in order to redeem man from their sins. He was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know. He was talking to those religious leaders in particular that hated him with a vengeance. They did not want to believe that he was the king of Israel. They did not want to believe that he was the son of God. They didn't want to believe that he was a Christ, the atoning sacrifice for us. They didn't want to accept any of these. They wanted to reject them all. They were the leaders, they were religious, they should have known all of these things, and I believe they did. But they rejected him. And so he's saying, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And then he's teaching us a lesson here, I believe, very important. Not about our salvation right here, but about our relationship with one another in Christ Jesus. Father, he's saying, forgive them, and he's saying, do this. And you remember, 
Peter one time in the gospel said something like this, how many times shall I forgive my brother? And he said, seven times Peter did. And Jesus Christ says, no, not seven times, but seven times 70 times a day you should forgive your brother. So when he's saying if someone has done something against you, forgive them. I remember Corrie Ten Boom when she was speaking in Germany some years ago, many years ago now, and she was speaking and she got through speaking. She walked down the aisle and a man was standing there. He put his hand out to her and he wanted to shake it and she knew who he was. He was one of the directors of the concentration camp that her and her sister were in and they had been treated cruelly and her sister even died there. And she said, I couldn't do it. My hand was like lead. It just wouldn't move. I didn't want to shake his hand. I didn't want to forgive him. So what had he done? And then she realized what God had done for her. And she lifted her hand and shook it and forgave him. It's not easy to forgive someone that does something to you. It's very difficult. Because we, we, we feel we should, be, we should be the one that comes. They should come to me and say, I'm sorry. But we are the ones that are asking. That's what he's saying. Forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize what's involved, all that's involved with their hatred of me. It wasn't a little thing. It wasn't just a gentle uh, rebuke of, uh, of like Peter did one time with the Lord Jesus Christ. But this was a hatred for this man that was to be the redeemer of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, he said, forgive them. Think how important it is for me to forgive anyone that's done something to me or I've done something to one. I should say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And that's what he's praying here right now, looking at that crowd. He wanted to understand, he wanted them to understand that he had forgiven them. Even with all the things that they had done that were so, so horrible toward him. The one who had done nothing wrong had always been righteous in every act of his life. They hated him with a hatred and he said, forgive them. Can you do that? Maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a family member, maybe someone that you know. And you need to go and forgive them. It's necessary, and that's what he's talking about. I think that's the second thing that Jesus Christ wanted to uh, relate to the people that were listening to him that time, that he had forgiven them. He loved them with an eternal love, and in that eternal love that he had for them, he said, I forgive you. What a wonder the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is in all of his glory and all of his humanity. The third one now is found in the book of Luke also. Remember, there are two men on the cross besides the Lord Jesus Christ, one on the right and one on the left. They were criminals. They were malefactors. Were, it, some translation means they're evildoers. And we don't know how great their crime was, but it was great that the, they were to be crucified because of their crime and their uh, damage to the human race, whatever it was. We don't know. But they were equally on each side of the Lord Jesus Christ. One was on the right and one was on the left. And they were cursing him. They were making fun of him. In fact, one of them says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. He was only interested in getting a physical 
safe uh, deliverance at that particular moment. And they kept cursed on him. Finally, one of the thieves looked at the other thieves and said, don't you fear God for nothing? Don't you realize that you belong here and I belong here because of our crimes, because of our things that we have done against our people? And then he looked to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How much this man knew about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that was coming, I don't know. Whether he was Jewish, I don't know that either. He may have been Jewish, he may have not been Jewish. I don't know that. But he, he, the Lord was working in his heart. The Holy Spirit was working. And all of a sudden, he, he realized, he turned to Jesus Christ and says, remember me. He didn't ask to be delivered from his death. He didn't ask to be anything specially done to him, but just to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he got silent, and the Lord Jesus Christ looked upon him. Can I, I wish I could have just seen the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beauty of holiness you see in that particular moment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at this thief, he didn't say, I'll remember you in my kingdom. He didn't say, I'll remember you when I'm raised from the grave. He said, today, today. You will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine those words coming into the, the mind and the heart of that thief that was going to die in just a short time when he heard Jesus Christ say, not in my kingdom, no. Not when I'm raised from the grave, but today. He died the same way. He died a cruel death, crucifixion. Soon his legs were going to be broken and his leg was broken, the block that he used to put his feet on to raise him up so he could breathe would be gone and he would suffocate and die. But now he had a peace, a quietness of spirit. Death had changed. He didn't ask Jesus Christ to save him from his death. He said, remember me, and Jesus Christ said today. You know, and that's what Jesus Christ said to each one of us when we became uh, willing to listen to the work of Christ on the cross and we said I receive you as my Savior it wasn't when he comes it was today it was that moment the minute that I made that decision with the Lord Jesus Christ I was become a new person in Christ Jesus now he could lay up on that cross he could think about the peace and in just a short time he would be with Jesus Christ in paradise oh it was a wonder it, to me it was an amazing thing to think and the other one kept on cursing. The other one died too, the same way his legs were going to be broken. But without Christ, without hope, without peace. He wasn't concerned about his future needs. But the one says to heard Jesus Christ say today. Have you heard him say that? To you when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ today? I receive my Savior. I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I've been restored to right relationship. And everything that Adam lost, I have regained and more than that for all eternity. And that thief now could die, yes. Oh, it didn't change. Physical cruelty of that debt didn't change. 
but his heart changed and there was a peace and there was a quietness of spirit a relationship what he was now in Christ Jesus think of that today two men as close to each other to Christ each one of them was close to Christ one was redeemed and went into the other one into eternity lost because he refused to respond to the love and the mercy and love that showed in the Lord Jesus Christ when he looked at that thief and said today that was the third thing that happened and then we go to the book of John chapter 19 and we come to that verses around 33 so in that area and we get there and we see Jesus is on the cross it's darkness now between 6 and 9 it became dark or 12 and 3 and he, and he uh, looked down below at the foot of the cross there were some women and one of those women was his mother and she was there and next near her was the disciple that Jesus Christ loved John the beloved disciple they were there and Jesus looked down at her and at him and notice what he said to her he says woman woman behold your son and then he said to him behold your mother he didn't call her mother everything had changed now his relationship with his mother was totally different he she was now just like anyone else and she had always been just like anyone else a sinner that needed to be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ when you go to Luke chapter 1 we won't turn to it Luke chapter 1 verse 34 35 where the angel came to Mary and said you're favored of God you're blessed of God and he told her she was going to have a, a child she would conceive and have a child and she couldn't understand this because she understood that she was a virgin and she couldn't have a child otherwise and then he said the Holy Spirit shall come upon you the power of the high shall overshadow you and that holy one that's in you will be called the son of God that was before until the Holy Spirit planted that seed in the womb of Mary. And then she way, rushed away from there back to where Elizabeth lived because she heard she was having a child. And she talked with her and after she got through talk, talking with Elizabeth, she we call the Magnificent. In Luke chapter 1, down further, down around 46 and 47, that area, and she said something like this. Mary said, I will magnify my Lord. Remember? Jesus wasn't even born yet. She says, I will magnify my Lord. And when you say that Jesus is your Lord, you're giving him the mastery, the control of your whole life. And she believed that he was in charge of her whole life. And then she says something else. She says, and in her spirit, she says, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. I will rejoice in God, my Savior. Think of that. Now she called him, God, called him Lord. She called him God, her creator. And she called him Savior. The one that was going to deliver her sins. So when Jesus Christ looked at her, Standing at the foot of the cross, he didn't say mother. The relationship has changed. 
She had to have a savior like anybody else has ever lived on the earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was dying for her sins on the cross. Yes, he, he loved her. He wanted her to be cared for by John. And he took her into his home and took care of her until she died. Until she died. But he wanted that kindness to be shown to Mary, his mother earthly. But now he looked at her and he says, Woman, you're just like everybody else. You need a redeemer like the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us can look to God and say, I don't need you. I'm good enough. Or I, I was a special person. I was the one that brought the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. I brought the Savior into the world. I have a special place. One other time Jesus Christ rebuked her in John chapter 2. He rebuked her because she was going to give him orders what to do with, about the wine. And he called a woman there. All the, and then we never again hear anything about Mary but one other place after his death and resurrection. And that's when they were in the upper room in the book of Acts. The 120. And the Holy Spirit was going to come on. And she was going to receive the Holy Spirit just like anyone else received the Holy Spirit when they were born again and was redeemed from their sins. Well, to me, that's a beautiful story. Yes, she was a wonderful person. She was blessed. And we should remember her in a special way. But that's all. She was just another person that needed to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the fourth thing that we see in the, in the seven sayings of the, of the, uh, on the cross. And I like the one about the thief so much. And I like the one because I fit in there. And I, fit, I don't fit in the second one. I fit in there because I was not very good. How many of you right now would like to come up front here and tell me all about yourself? Everything. I don't think so. <laughs> I wouldn't. Because we don't tell everybody everything about everything. It doesn't, my wife and I have been married 66 years. I think she knows a lot about me. But she don't know everything about me, I'm afraid. I'm glad. <laughs> And I don't know everything about her because there's some things so deep within her. But it's a wonder now in Christ Jesus I can say all of that's been cleansed, all of that's been redeemed. Now we come to the last three. And the one, this is found in John chapter 19, the next one. And it's, he's there and all, all he says in that passage there in John 19 he says something like this. He says that uh, everything has come to its fulfillment, its completion. And he said, I thirst. I mean, maybe it's spiritual, this expression he's talking about, about thirst, but I think it's physical. They offered him different things, you remember, to drink? And he refused some of them because they would have made him dull and a feeling of pain. And he didn't want to take the pain away from him that was part of his uh, uh, being on the cross. But now he came to the place, everything was completed. It was coming to an end. And he says, I thirst. How many of you have ever said, I'm dying of thirst? Raise your hand. No, don't do that. <laughs> All of us. We, actually, you just wanted a little water, didn't you? But we, had, we were dying of thirst. 
But he wasn't just a little water. He had been beaten. He had been standing on a trial, a so-called trial, six different ones of them over the time. And he was beaten. His face was so more that it was not recognizable. It says in Isaiah 53. And he was dehydrated. And just a touch of water would have been wonderful. So now he says, I, I, I'm thirsty. Well, they gave him some water, yes. But we can realize that Jesus Christ is a man. He wasn't just some kind of miraculous thing that came into the world. He took upon himself humanity. Not sin nature, but he took upon himself humanity. And he went through everything. Remember all the time? He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got, he got tired. Uh, he, all kinds of things happened to him. Here on the cross, and the, the, the terribleness of that cross, he says, I thirst. I, I need something. Just a brief moment. And then... The next one is found in Luke, back chapter 23. And uh, we're coming to the very close now. I would say it's right at the last moments of the time before they'll die. And Jesus Christ looked up to the Father and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He bent, bowed his head and gave up his spirit to the Lord God and Father in heaven. It was done. His work on Calvary was going to come close because they put in just a short time because they wanted to be sure these men were all dead before the Sabbath begun and the Sabbath begun just at sundown. And he was waiting for that and, then, and just at that moment he gave up his spirit to the Father. He says, I commit it into your hand. What you asked me to do, I've done. I've completed that work for you on the cross. It's finished. And that's the next expression. In, in chapter nine, John, 19 of John, he says, it's finished. And the work of his so redemptive work was done. We well, said it was finished, and then they came and they broke the legs of the first thief. They broke the legs of the second thief, and they looked at him, and he was already dead. And then one of the soldiers put a spear in his side, and the blood came and went onto the ground. It was done. He said, it's finished. What was finished? Everything that was necessary for you and me to be saved, to become sons of God, to be accepted into the very presence of God, to be forgiven. Did you ever stop to think what it meant to have your sins removed as far as the east is from the west and to be buried in the sea, as it says in Psalm 103? Forgiven. I've been restored. I'm a new person in Christ Jesus, I'm reconciled. I am his, and he is mine. When Jesus Christ said it was finished, it was done. Never, there was nothing else can, could be done or would be done in relationship to the work of the gospel apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to come out of that grave. We have an empty cross now. But we have a tomb with the Lord Jesus Christ in it. Anyway, then, we'll look, come back to that a little later. But now I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If I can 
can find it. That's the wrong chapter. In this chapter, we're going to look at verses 12 through 20. We're going to skip the first verses for a moment. We want to look at the first verse 12 through 20, and then we'll come back to the first verses later. In these verses, we have something concerning the, revel- the resurrection. It's interesting. We won't read the verses, but you can follow along as I go with them. And in these verses, there is the, the work of, of someone said, Jesus Christ had been risen, you see, verse 12. But someone has said that there was no resurrection. Now, I said the second part of our message would have to do with the necessity of the resurrection. They said there was no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection of Christ, and there's no resurrection of uh, anyone, then you, your faith is empty. What you have believed is worthless. It has no value whatsoever. And then it says if there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then we're false witnesses of God. Because we're saying Christ is risen when God did not raise him from the dead. We're false witnesses. First of all, our, our faith is empty. We're false witnesses of God. And then he goes a little further in that chapter, the verse there, and he says something like this. He says that those that have died in Christ have perished if there's no resurrection. They had believed a lie. And when they died, expecting to be raised, there was no resurrection. So they, were, they, were, they were still in their sins. And he goes a little further and he speaks about, and then... You are all, are, of all men, all people are most miserable if you only have hope in Christ Jesus now. If your hope is only in Jesus Christ for now, what he can do for you now, it's not much. He says, you have all people most miserable. You see, if there was no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there's no salvation, we are without hope. When I die, I won't know what, other than I'll go to the place separated from God forever. But then it's just right after that it says, but Christ is risen. But Christ is risen. He's alive. And I like to, I like, sometimes I like to ask this question, where were they on the day of resurrection? I'm talking about the 11 men. Where were they? If I really believed, and I think they really believed it, why didn't they go to the tomb on the third day and see him come out of the grave? You don't have the answer, and I don't either. <laughs> but I think about that sometimes. Why weren't they there? Where would you have been if you believe what he said? Where would you have been if on that third day? But he did come out, and there was a... There was a story that came out. Amazing story came out. The story was that one of the soldiers went back to the, uh, guards went back to the uh, religious leader and said, during the night we fell asleep 
And he, somebody stole his body. Somebody took his body. Oh, they said, that's great. You know what we're going to do? Tell that story. We'll pay you for it. And if the government comes to you, we'll take care of you. Can you imagine for the next 40 days, <laughs> Jesus was everywhere. How many people said, now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the first part. Paul comes, is telling us, he came and preached the gospel to them. They received it. They are standing on it. They, are, they have believed in the salvation in Christ Jesus. And then he told us what the gospel was. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. And on the third day he was raised from the grave or from the tomb according to the scriptures. And he was seen. And he was seen of Peter... He was seen in the 12, which I think is a biblical mistake. It was only 11 then. But, but he, oh, yeah, no, they say, if you go to Acts, he would put in there, yeah, he would be 12. Yeah, excuse me. That's correct. I was wrong. Anyway, he was seen in the 12. Then he was seen over 500 brethren at the same time. Many are still living. Most few have died, but most of them are still living. He was seen of James. He was seen of the leaven it says there because Thomas wasn't with him the first time he had been raised and now he had been everywhere witnessing his resurrection and talking to the believers that were followers of his many women had seen him raised the two on Emmaus had seen him and others had seen him John, John had seen him with Peter when they went to the tomb together He's risen. He's not dead. We serve a living Savior. He's a Savior that's perfectly at the right hand of the Father right now. Because after 40 days, he went to the Father and sat up on the right hand of the Father. And he is there right now interceding for us. And he's coming back. I want to ask you, I want to say something in relationship to... uh, to, uh, the empty cross. When you see a church with a cross with a person on it, ignore it. Because he's not on the cross. They took him down. They had to take him down before sundown, before the new day Sabbath had started. And then they buried him in the tomb. He was in that tomb till the third day. The tomb's empty. There is nothing in that tomb now. You can go to Israel and visit it, or which they think the tomb is, but it's empty. But there's something else that's empty. There's a third emptiness. Hearts. Empty hearts. Yes, because the cross is empty, because the tomb is empty, the heart can be filled with the Lord Jesus Christ and not be empty. But most of the world that we live in today, their hearts are empty. Maybe some in this room even, this service, hearts are empty because you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't know. But the heart is empty because you are have rejected the empty tomb and the empty cross and the living, risen Savior Jesus Christ. And the great 
responsibility. If you go into the next chapters of the Gospels that we've been looking at, if you go into those chapters, there's a commission, there's a command that we are to go. Luke says we are to be, Christ says in Luke we are to be witnesses of him. We are to witness to him concerning the word of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew says we're to go into all the world to do what? To preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring them to a saving knowledge. How many people in Bernie are unsaved? I don't know, but it's probably a large number. Probably more unsaved than they are saved throughout the world. But you, if you're here and you have an empty heart, it can be filled one way. When the Philippian jailer came out to talk to Paul and Silas, you know what he said? He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul looked at him and gave him one question, one answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's what he said. He didn't say do this, do that, or something else. He says, just believe. That is, take God at his word. God said, if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, who died on the, on the cross in your place, you are redeemed. It's not something you've done or can do or will do. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that in and of itself is the gift of God. Not a works of righteousness which we have done. It's a gift. I probably told this story, maybe not here, but other places. A man was having meetings in a town in, in the United States. And there was a little, he, he offers him a silver dollar, a real silver dollar. Have you ever seen a real silver dollar? Well, if you've seen a real silver, I'm not talking about these phony ones, but real ones. It's made of silver. He offered, he says, whoever comes up here, I will give you this silver dollar. And the audience sat. Finally, a 10-year-old little girl walked up forward, and he gave her the silver dollar. She went back and sat down. He says, that's salvation. It's a gift. No strings attached. Nothing you have to do. Just take it. And your heart will be filled with the presence of the living, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when I was a boy, I used to think something. I think that when Christ was coming back, I'd go through that roof and I'd mess it up. Finally, I realized when I go through that roof, I'm not going to bother it at all. But he could come, and all of us that are in Christ Jesus would go up. The rest would stay here waiting for whatever. But you don't have to be waiting. He says to watch and pray. He's coming back. He loves you as he loved that thief on the cross. And said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's not our word, but you've given these messages, these sayings on the cross, and there probably were many more that were not recorded. Many things were said to, to the thieves, to the others around there. But thank God we know that it was finished. And we don't wait for tomorrow. We don't wait for any more work to be done. We're just waiting for that time when Christ will come with a shout and the voice of the archangel will sound and dead in Christ arrive. And those of us that are alive in Christ will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Easter clouds the issue. 
But Resurrection Sunday says he's alive. He is seated at your right hand. And one day at the appointed time, he's going to say, I'm going to get my church. And we thank God in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.